This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Friday, June 28th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. That was a smart way to begin the most effective critique that I can remember being used to dismantle the scaffolding of a frontrunner in a presidential debate. I do not believe you're a racist. A, it primes the listener. B, it preempts a defense that you know was going to be used. Indeed, it was used. And C, it allows the speaker to be heard because of the defensiveness of the listener. This is sometimes called white fragility, given how serious the charge of racism is in our society. I don't think it's necessarily fragile to not want to be called racist. Anyway, you're not racist, but is a good way in to what she was about to say. And then the former prosecutor, Kamala Harris, made her case. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. Now, I can and I have put forward a counterargument that Biden wasn't praising the men, he wasn't coddling them, which was Harris's words in a CBS interview. Biden was evoking segregationists because he was reaching for the very embodiment of loathsomeness to illustrate that even despite those who are odious, he can work with them. So that's one thing he could have said. And he could have mentioned that in the 2008 vice presidential debate with Sarah Palin, he raised the example of not questioning the motivation of Jesse Helms. And he was widely praised when he did so. He beat Palin in that debate. The point he was making was obvious that he could look past the motivations of his enemies to get things done. He could also talk about just a couple years ago when he was campaigning for Doug Jones in Alabama and how he would tell stories of working with segregationist James O. Eastland and the like. Here. It's become so nasty, so mean-spirited, such a mean-spirited political environment. Even in the days when I got there, the Democratic Party still had seven or eight old-fashioned Democratic segregationists. You'd get up and you'd argue like the devil with them. Then you'd go down and have lunch or dinner together. And the crowd nodded and approved, and then it sent a Democrat from Alabama to the Senate. Could have talked about why he believes in working with rivals, why he does still believe that, even in the face of Mitch McConnell intractability. Could have done all that. And he could have also had an answer, though it would have been more difficult for this part of Harris's cross-exam. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Now to this, he could have said, as Mayor Pete said, I was wrong. Or, barring that, he could have said, you know, your experience in Berkeley was different from what my constituents were experiencing in Delaware, and they were upset by it, and they were demanding that I, as their senator, do something. And one thing that I've always done is address the concerns of my constituents and also honor the promises I make to them. Could have said a lot of things. But the most important fact is that he didn't. 
And that was because when I say that Biden could have said a lot of things or this or that, I realize what I'm saying and what I mean is that some version of Joe Biden could have said that, a former version. What Biden did do was what he's been doing for almost the whole campaign, fumfering, losing the thread, being overly general, getting defensive, embarking on a non-response. And this is why I looked at that exchange as auguring extremely poorly for Joe Biden. Not because the criticism couldn't be overcome, but that I'm coming to believe it can't be overcome by 2020 Joe Biden. I don't think one critique in one debate is ever so crushing, but I see no evidence, I haven't seen it for a while, that Joe Biden has the mental acuity or the verbal dexterity to fully engage in all aspects of what it takes to be a successful Democratic candidate for 2020. I can be proved wrong. There could be some great speech or spry interview or even a triumphant next debate. But you know, there haven't been any great speeches, interviews, or triumphs so far. I don't know. In fact, I am skeptical that Biden has the skill to muster this greatness, these triumphs, to regain momentum, and as described by Eric Swalwell, to once again carry that torch because the current Joe Biden seems to have lost the spark. On the show today, well, you may have noticed that I just engaged in a discussion of the impact of Kamala Harris by talking about mostly someone other than Kamala Harris. The spiel shall be all about Kamala Harris and what she really thinks about private insurance. But first, Kim Jong-un is the dictator of North Korea. You know, they say that he could drive a car when he was three. That is not true. So much about Kim Jong-un is not true. But what is true, Anna Fifield, a correspondent for the Washington Post, has put together, I'm not going to say definitive, but the most thorough and fascinating exploration of Kim Jong-un, king of the hermit kingdom. Kim Jong-un is the most fascinating, vexing, perplexing, compelling figure in international politics. Who is he? He's been called a madman. He's clearly not. He's quite short. Apparently is uh, a great golfer, is uh, responsible for a few miracles, if you read the North Korean State News Agency. So cracking this case like no one has before with methods that have, to my mind, never been used for to profile anyone else, and I'll tell you why I say that in a second, is Anna Fifield. She is the author of The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Anna, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm thrilled to be here. So before I even before we even crack this nut, and I say that advisably, the methods, I do not know that what I'm about to say and how you went about constructing the book has ever been done. You literally talked to everyone who you could that had ever been in physical contact with Kim Jong-un. Is that right? Anyone. Yeah, that is right. That's what I set out to do. So some of the people that I talked to during the course of reporting this book, 
they had like they shook his hand. They spent mm. five seconds or ten seconds with him at his father's funeral or some diplomatic function somewhere along the way. But like no encounter with Kim Jong Un was too trivial for me to hunt that person down and ask them about it. I think the biggest insights were not from an obscure so- source. They were from his uh, his aunt and uncle and people who knew him when he was a student in Switzerland when he was outside the cosseted uh, existence that he lived in North Korea. So tell me what you learned from them. Right. So I talked to uh, three people who were at his eighth birthday party in North Korea. They included a Japanese sushi chef who lived there in the royal household and also his aunt and uncle who were there. And they described how he was given a little general's uniform on his eighth birthday, uh, complete with, you know, brass buttons and stars and a hat and all that. And that he was announced then as the comrade general, that he would be the successor to Kim Jong-il, his father. And they said that, you know, real generals were saluting him and bowing to him there uh, and that it was impossible from that day on for him to live a normal childhood. Um, and also that they they, uh, you know, he got used to giving orders from that very young age. He would, you know, he was really fascinated with trains and planes and engines and things. And if he couldn't figure it out, even if it was three o'clock in the morning, he would call like a real admiral in the, you know, North Korean Navy or someone to ask how to work his little motorboat or something. You know, Ugh. he yeah, had a very abnormal childhood. And what was his life like in his uh, his boarding school in Switzerland? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a boarding school. He lived at home with this aunt and uncle in this very ordinary apartment that I visited in the Swiss capital of Bern. It was like an orange apartment block, and he had a three-story apartment there, very ordinary. Uh, You know, he went to an English-language private school, first of all, and then he transferred two years into a German-language public school. And in both places, he did have a little difficulty um, communicating, you know, because of the language issue, but he eventually became conversational in German and managed to fit in a little bit more. But he was really kind of an oddity at his school all the same, even though there were a lot of international kids there, lots of kids of diplomats, as he was pretending to be. Uh, he um, he had four main friends who were uh, his buddies there that he could talk to. They said that he was like not very academically minded, not interested in his lessons. All he wanted to do was play basketball. And so every afternoon after school, he'd be out on the court, uh, shooting hoops and trash talking the other kids. And like that was where he really came into his element. And these kids, they said, you know, they're like 14 years old. They didn't care about or know about North Korea versus South Korea or anything like that. They didn't think anything of it. But they did think he was a little odd in that there was often a lineup of adults, like Korean adults sitting there in little fold-up chair, chairs who would like applaud him and cheer for him wherever, every time he scored a goal. And it was a little abnormal, they said. So was he the favorite son? I know he wasn't seen by outsiders. It was a surprise when he became the anointed one. Uh, what went into that decision? Was it was his mother the favorite? Was uh, he the favorite? How, how was he chosen? Because he has half brothers. Right. So, I mean, according to Korean and Confucian hierarchy, it should always be the oldest son who is the a, a successor, the heir. Um, and so, in 
this situation, it should have been Kim Jong-nam, the firstborn son of Kim Jong-il. Uh, and there's been this widespread belief that Kim Jong-nam fell out of favor in 2001 when he was busted trying to sneak into Japan to go to Tokyo Disneyland with his family. But actually, I think that he fell out of favor well before then because Kim Jong-nam's mother, she basically left North Korea when Kim Jong-nam was only three years old. She had this kind of mental breakdown when her partner, Kim Jong-il, took off with another woman, and she went and lived in Moscow pretty much for the rest of her life, and she was out off the scene in North Korea. Whereas Kim Jong-un's mother, she was there. She was the de facto first lady. She was very ambitious. She was very involved in the running of the regime. And she had high hopes for her sons. So she was uh, kind of engineering for them to be the successors from the get-go. Like She wanted them to be called the comrade generals. And she arranged for them to go to the North Korean equivalent of West Point so that they had this kind of military credential going in. So I think it was her who was that was she was really the decisive factor in deciding which line of the family triumphed. Um, and amongst those two sons, you know, Kim Jong Chol, who's the oldest, Kim Jong Un's older brother, he seems to have some medical issues, or for some reason he did not rise to the top. Whereas Kim Jong Un, you know, apparently had a natural aptitude for this, and he he was the one who rose to the top of the pack. How much, how well does the totally oppressive state of North Korea work? I mean, we always hear, or if we've studied oppressive regimes, people within the regimes uh, under the Iron Curtain and so forth always knew to some extent that they were being lied to. Some of them did. But in North Korea, is that the case? Or have they really, has the uh, the leadership and Kim Jong-un really redefined reality to most of the people? No, it's pretty much the case today. Like 10 years ago, it was not the case. I think there would have been much more belief in the system. But now, you know, the trading has opened up a little bit with North Korea. And when those sacks of rice and those solar panels and things come in from China into North Korea so too does information. So now almost everybody in North Korea has seen South Korean soap operas and Chinese action films and things that are smuggled into the country in little USB sticks or micro SD cards. So many people now have seen what life is like in the outside world. They know that this regime is built on lies and that everything about this, these quasi-deities is mythology. But the system is still so oppressive that they cannot speak out. You cannot criticize Kim Jong-un, uh, even obliquely and hope to get away with it in North Korea because this police state, it's really hard to exaggerate how pervasive it is, how workmates and family members can be coerced or to snitch on each other. Uh, it's very, very pervasive. And the punishment is so severe so that if you were to criticize Kim Jong-un, not only would you be thrown into a political prison camp, but uh, potentially, almost certainly, three generations of your family. And so that is a very powerful deterrent from speaking out against this regime. So even though they know, people still do not feel able to criticize it or protest in any way. I always wonder, I mean, there's, it's so opaque, but 
with oppressive societies, it's not just, you know, it's often portrayed that the leader is horrible. And if it weren't for the leader, no, there are stakeholders. Uh, Saddam Hussein had uh, a whole lot of people from his town and then his tribe and then his uh, sect who were loyal to him, right? Even if he was oppressive. So you can't just take out the top. But with North Korea, how many people are there are really invested in the perpetuation of this place as a nuclear state hermit kingdom. Yeah, there is this cohort of elites who live in Pyongyang, the capital. Uh, like about 10% of the country or two and a half million people live in Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is the home to the people who are considered most loyal to the regime. Uh, the, so that's where all of the officials and all the top brass all live in Pyongyang. And but it also, to interrupt, it also does seem those people live in terror themselves. They do. They do live in terror. They live in constant fear of falling out of favor. But Kim Jong-un has been quite savvy and that not only does he use fear, but he also builds loyalty. So those people are enjoying a much higher standard of living under Kim Jong-un than they ever have before. I mean, partly because he's allowed so much corruption. So everybody is on the take in North Korea now. And these elites who have top jobs and maybe are, you know, the military is building all these apartment towers with Chinese construction companies. They're all siphoning off money and they're all finding ways to make money on the side. So these, they're called the masters of money in Korean. These people are living a much, uh, a much better life than they ever were before. And their children, like the millennials of Pyongyang, which is, you know, sometimes these days jokingly called Pyonghattan because it has improved so much. Like these millennials, they can go to pool halls and karaoke and do yoga classes and, um, you know, work out on these treadmills that bear signs saying respected and beloved Kim Jong-un donated this treadmill to you. Mm. Uh, there is this kind of whole leisurely air in Pyongyang among the elites now. So those people have even less reason than ever before to disrupt the system. Like they would not be the 1% if they went to South Korea, for example. So he's, he's held onto power partly by creating this loyalty amongst them and also by showing the fear, the terror. You know, you can lose everything. You can lose this li- nice life if you dare cross me. Yeah. Sounds like Pyong, Staten Island at best. Just going to say, I don't know if that's exactly <laughs> Pyonghan. Well, your book's a biography, and this is more a tactical question, but why would he ever give up nuclear missiles? I mean, it seems like that's the only thing keeping him in power. And so all of this outreach and and summits, even if it goes well or doesn't go well, depending on how you define it, it just seems to me there's zero chance that Kim Jong-un would ever give up uh, the ambitions and the pursuit of nuclear weapons. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way he's giving up those nuclear weapons. I mean, two months before Kim Jong-un took over as leader of North Korea, Muammar Gaddafi was dragged out of a ditch, bloodied, you know, and then killed in a very gruesome way in Libya. I mean, and he, he had struck a deal with the United States to give up his nuclear capability and look what happened to him. I am sure that is a lesson that Kim Jong-un, you know, has seared into his brain and that there is, yeah, there's no way that I think he would ever feel secure enough to give up these weapons um, and that he would be able to explain it to his own people as well. But I think, you know, there is some middle ground here. There maybe there is some kind of agreement that can be reached uh, through baby steps. Uh, it's He's not going to give up anything straight away. 
but maybe he, yeah, he can give up some old reactors. Maybe, you know, they could uh, start a liaison office just to make it easier for them to talk. You know, there are no diplomatic relations between these two countries. So every time they do talk, it's a huge deal. Right. They could make it easier. You know, I, uh, I went to Pyongyang with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, um, in 2008. I think things like that, like cultural exchanges, sports exchanges, more basketball, you know, can all start to close the, the gap. Really, between it really is countries. Rodman. It really is all on Rodman. I can't believe <laughs> Not it. Not necessarily yeah. Rodman. Did you try? You tried to get to Rodman, right? You talked to people around him. Yeah, yeah. I talked to five people who went on trips to uh, North Korea with Rodman on various trips, and they were able to describe you some of You talked to these. the entire potcoin leadership, did you? <laughs> <laughs> there were potcoin people and potcoin t-shirt wearers involved, yes. Um, but, you know, they were able to describe some of these really astounding scenes, you know, of going on benders with Kim Jong-un. And Kim Jong-un's there singing James Brown uh, at karaoke. And it's just really bizarre to think that this was able to happen. What do he's he's held out as a, a strange and ridiculous character to us in the West. But what did the South? How did the South Koreans read him other than threat? Yeah, I mean, the South Koreans have become very used to the threats from North Korea, you know, of having this, these, you know, dictators north of the border. But I think uh, they have become quite inured to that threat. You know, they've been living in artillery range of North Korea for 60 years. They know that this dispute is mainly between the United States and North Korea. So, I mean, in my years of living in South Korea, people would just kind of poo-poo the idea of a North Korean threat or anything, you know, and they'd laugh about kind of any crisis response drills and things like that. And that began to change a bit in 2017. And I have to say, it wasn't because of Kim Jong-un that things changed. It was because of Donald Trump. I mean, they felt that Kim Jong-un was a predictable uh, factor in this equation. But the unpredictable quotient was Donald Trump and that they did not know uh, how serious he was about fire and fury. You know, they heard Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham and things say, you know, fight a war over there. Who cares? It's not our people kind of thing. And this um, put fear into people like never before. From this project and getting to know him, I think probably certainly as best as any journalist has or as any uh, as any person from the West has. Um, do you fear him more or less now that you know him so well? Hmm. I I mean, the point I wanted to make in writing the book is that he's not this like total nut job as Trump once described to him. That right. he has been very rational and very strategic. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, stipulated. So that means, though, I mean, that could go either yeah. way. If he were know, insane, that maybe that's more scary, maybe that's less scary. Yeah. I mean, I think I fear him more in that he has proven to be very canny and strategic. And, you know, I don't see any signs that he's going anywhere anytime soon. And, he, you know, he's he's been willing to use really brutal tactics to stay in power. So I think we should be taking him very seriously and, and not underestimating him. That's for sure. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. She was previously the Post-Tokyo bureau chief, and she is the author of The Great successor, the divinely perfect destiny of brilliant comrade Kim Jong-un. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Mike.
And now the spiel. Show of hands. Are we over these show of hands questions? Or do you like them? Who likes them? If you like them, stomp your feet. Or, you know, do the raise the roof motion if you're ambivalent. Well, there was another use of the show of hands question in last night's debate. Here it was from moderator Lester Holt. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about health care. And this is going to be a show of hands question. We asked a question about health care last night that spurred a lot of discussion, as you know. We're going to do it again now. Many people watching at home have health insurance of their employer. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Raising their hands were Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. The Bernie part makes sense. That guy's consistent. The Harris part was confusing, or maybe it wasn't, or I'm confused about whether it should be confusing, because she did earlier in a CNN town hall endorse eliminating private insurance. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. And then the next day she clarified, saying that uh, she wants to get there one day, but in an incremental way. So that is her stance, incremental. But then last night, there was that raise your hand question. Here it is again. Many people watching at home have health insurance of their employer. Who here would abolish their health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Okay, that was the question. Here on MSNBC's Morning Joe, Harris was asked why she raised her hand. Senator, on, on health care last night, you were asked to raise your hands, the entire panel, 10 of you, if you believe eliminating private insurance should be part of the Medicare for All proposal. You and Bernie Sanders both raised your hands. You've been asked and sort of clarified this question a couple of times over the course of the campaign. So once and for all, do you believe that private insurance should be eliminated in this country? No. You don't? No, I but do not. But you raised your hand last but night. But the question was, would you give up your private insurance? for that option and i said yes oh i think I you heard it differently than others then I, probably because that's, that's what i heard question, well the word wasn't you the word was there but i guess the plural pronoun there in the question who here would abolish their private health insurance i guess that could refer to the antecedent people watching at home which i think lester holt meant or it could refer to the antecedent who meaning who among you would abolish your private health insurance. You know, language is funny. So there it is, and there she is, clarifying again. The same clarification, on the same issue, in the same direction. So why doubt her? Well, there's this. She is the co-sponsor of Bernie's bill, which would eliminate private health insurance. And she has said multiple times now that that is her stance. I am willing to give her the benefit of the doubt on this, I am willing to give her the benefit of the doubt on whether she thinks felons still in jail should have the right to vote, which was also an idea that was endorsed by Harris before being retracted by her campaign. And then there's the issue of reparations, which she endorsed pretty full-throatedly, especially in such forums as the Breakfast Club radio show hosted by Charlemagne the God. Later, she clarified and pulled back before an audience of the rest of us, the flock. So the other day, MSNBC's Joy Reid was here to discuss her new book, The Man Who Sold America. It was a great convo. And as a bonus question, I asked her about Kamala Harris and her tendency to make a big splash, but then to a bit sheepishly mop it up afterward. I will give the rest of my spiel over to that three minutes of conversation. The next voice you will hear will, yeah, also be mine. Can I ask one question? And I don't know where I'll use this, but it's this. Yeah. You know, it has 
I like a lot about what Kamala Harris says and how she presents herself. And yeah. she's great in hearings. I don't know how much that maps on to what your job as the president is. She's clearly a great and smart prosecutor. Three times during the campaign, and maybe I'm being unfair because, you know, we, we're not paying as much attention to Jay Inslee, and maybe he's done this too. But it seems to me that three times in the campaign, she's been asked uh, uh, an interesting question, and she's taken a bold, provocative stance and then has had to walk it back or have yeah. her people walk it back. And I'm talking about one is not the huge issue of should we let felons in jail vote, right? And she walked that back. And then there was the Medicare for all answer. And just recently, there was uh, another instance where she was giving an interview with NPR saying, you know, as president, I had to open up an investigation with into Donald Trump. And then she said, I didn't say that right. What do you think of that? What do you make of that? Is she, should this worry us if in other ways, she seems an attractive candidate for the presidency or the nomination. I think in general, candidates who are not used to running for president, right, are going to have these moments. But um, it's better to figure out what you're going to say and then stick to it yeah. than to walk things back in general. Yeah. Because the thing that particularly younger voters don't like is the idea that somebody is, quote, establishment in the sense that they don't have convictions, right? The reason that people loved Bernie Sanders, and he's he's got less enthusiasm now, but the reason he has such a hardcore constituency is the sense that whatever he's saying is what he really thinks. I think Elizabeth Warren, too. It doesn't seem like she's thinking and calculating, what am I going to say and what's the right politically right answer? Let me just tell you what I think. And you get the sense that she has studied these issues and come to conclusions on her own, and then she knows what the conclusions are, and then she spits those conclusions out, and it isn't political. And I think the biggest danger for Kamala Harris is ever looking like the things she's doing are political or calculated. She needs to think about what it is that she thinks about things and then just say that. And if people don't like it, it's too bad. I think one of the benefits of Warren is that she doesn't... hmm? But should she stick with quote-unquote bad answers? Like once she said, yes, felons in jail should vote, that should be her answer. Well, no, what I'm saying is that before that even before she got to that... Yeah, but it's a weird kind of question that she's probably not thought about. Well, I mean, but But I was kind of impressed by Pete Buttigieg, who didn't do that, who just said no. And and in all three cases, she said, I guess, the more progressive or the most aggressive right. And I think answer. she's trying to get to a place that is where, in her candidate campaign's perception, yeah. the sort of core of the party is more progressive, so that she seems to be going toward the more progressive. That's answer. what I think is happening. I don't know if that's her though. I mean, look that's, at her look at her uh history as a prosecutor in California. Well, I mean, you can still be a progressive and be a prosecutor, but I think But that, she wasn't. <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, yeah. there are people who say that she was really pushing to try to change the system for the better. Yeah. But I just think in general, the best answer is what you actually think. Yeah. Right? I that mean, the, and because you don't have to walk it back. <laughs> that's right. So I think what she should do is if she is less if she is not super to the far left progressive, that's fine. You mm-hmm. can be that. Mm-hmm. There are other candidates who are probably even to the right of her. But she should figure out her genuine positions on things and don't try to get to the more progressive place unless that's where you really are. Good analysis. Thank you, Joy Reid. Indeed it was. Joy Ann Reid is the author of The Man Who Sold America, Trump, and the Unraveling of the American Story. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Biennemi and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Their first combined act as president will be to place a call to New Zealand to get the prime minister on the phone and negotiate an equitable share of Lord. She's really a delight. And we're looking to harness our nation's love of Lord for political purposes. They will meet you on that field and Lord will win. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. And she is a scientist, a scientist, I tell you, twice. The gist. The American people don't want a food fight. 
Checks the Trump presidency and the Republican debates last time. No, wait, they definitely want a food fight. That's exactly what they want. Maybe with some professional wrestling thrown in. Carry on. Oomperu, depperu, depperu. And thanks for listening.